and welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and sustaining community for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning, Technology, and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Sequetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetmuk Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today, whew, things they are a changing. Let's get into it. To mask or not to mask? That is the question. We are mask friendly. I don't know what any of that means, except that (laughs) mask mandates are dropped this week on campus. It's an interesting next step, I suppose, in our ever-present quest towards normal. It worries me, though. It worries me on a personal level. My kiddo isn't yet eligible for his second shot, and I still feel like we are pretty vulnerable as a family. It worries me for folks in the larger community, immunocompromised people, my dad is one, and really anybody who has a risk factor. I've got high blood pressure, like any good academic, so (laughs) I'm in a risk category all my own. I understand the desire to feel like we're experiencing normalness. Normality? Again, I really do. I, I mean, I'm not enjoying this any more than anyone else. I think like many introverts, I might be coping slightly better, but I'm not enjoying myself. To me, though, the rush back to a maskless classroom seems to somehow speak to the rush back to quote-unquote normal. By that I mean we seem so quick to exchange everything we've learned, all these hard-won lessons of the last two years, we seem so quick to toss them aside. We're chasing after a reality that doesn't exist anymore. I guess I don't understand why living with COVID doesn't mean taking all the best precautions we have to keep the people around us safe. We're mask-friendly, which I guess means nobody can punch you square in the jaw for choosing to wear a mask, (laughs) I guess. But you know, masking has never been about the individual choice. And I think about the collective responsibility of our classroom communities when it's signaled to us that what matters most is the individual choice. I just got to believe that's not the right way to approach things. Anyway, nobody asked me, so I hope that you are in a position to keep yourself as safe as possible, and I hope that you are checking in with your students and colleagues and trying to come up with communal ways forward, because if somebody in the room has COVID, it's not an individual choice anymore, hey? It's, uh, I don't know if it gets much more collective than that. I think we have to keep having the conversation. We have to not be afraid of it, and I also think We have to stand up for what we think is right. And I still think that acting cautiously and protecting the people around us is what's right. You don't have to agree, of course. And I think that that's the messaging that we're certainly getting from campus is that everybody has to plot their own way forward. But I hope we can try to find ways to do that in community. 
And if the institution doesn't want to have a community conversation, then maybe that's something that we need to do ourselves. So as I say, I hope you're checking in with students and colleagues and just seeing where everybody's at. Maybe you're all more on the same page than you think. I'm excited to share with you my talk today with Robbie Davey because, well, it kind of taps into this idea of checking in and reaching out and building community, but I'm going to let her explain how. Hey, I am here today with Robbie Davey. Robbie, would you introduce yourself to folks and let them know what you do on campus, where they might find you? Sure. Um, I work as uh, the Indigenous Experiential Learning Coordinator, and that's in Career and Experiential Learning, a department in Faculty of Student Development. You know, we're basically in career uh, support and then also the co-op arm as well. And I definitely want to talk to you about your role and what you do in that capacity. But the real thing that inspired me to invite you on the show is that I found out about your master's thesis via Tony Bates' blog. Things are like circular because your master's was done here at TRU. And uh, the title of that project was, It Will Never Be My First Choice to Do an Online Course, Examining Experiences of Indigenous Learners Online in Canadian Post-Secondary Educational Institutions. And I think this is a fascinating piece of research. It's a gap in the online learning sort of research community. We don't talk a lot about indigenization of online learning, or at least not enough. And so I'm hoping that you would start by maybe just introducing the project to us and letting us know sort of what it was generally about. And then I'm hoping we can dig into kind of some of the recommendations that come out of your research, if you don't mind. The project, you know, stemmed from when I I worked in open learning myself and noticed there is there is an interest in doing you know in in indigenizing for lack of a better term and and thinking about indigenous learners in general. But there, you're right, there wasn't a lot of there hadn't been a study necessarily. Not a co. There's been studies of cohorts and and how they have uh, like students that are part of the same community and partnerships with different institutions that have rolled out a program, which I thought was very different than than an online, generally a student alone online. And so what I what I had heard, so I had been doing a master's um, at TRU in education and, you know, because of my background and I had been interested in the online component, there was a few Indigenous students in my student cohort or whatever that um, I just noticed a lot of people didn't like taking online courses or they felt alone, they're not enough community. So there was sort of an anecdotal, you know, set of comments that inspired me to think about that as a potential. And then when I saw that there wasn't a great deal of information, I thought it was a good opportunity to, to provide some information. You know, we already know that Indigenous learners are largely underserved in universities when it comes to sort of accessing resources and feeling like they are, you know, in community with the institution. And then you add in the asynchronous, self-paced component, which requires a learner to be extremely self-motivated and and in many ways really sort of rewards like, like an existing kind of positive educational relationship, right? Like you, you've, mm-hmm. you've got to want to be doing it. And there's not a lot of 
uh, kind of coaxing or pushing along and you don't have other people necessarily or you're not connected to other people necessarily to help with that. So it, it seems to me like those are two problems that that end up compounded. Is that sort of what you found mm-hmm. when you were looking at it? Yeah, I noticed that there's a there's a big um, kind of concept in looking at any Indigenous aspect of education in terms of not viewing it from a deficit point of view. So Mm -hmm. the other piece was in thinking through what could we be doing better, even in an asynchronous course, to support learners who need more community. And in terms of them or us as students taking courses kind of on our own and um, relying on the kind of putting the onus on the student to develop those skills because that is an angle you can take like okay well so for us to take asynchronous courses we need to have great time management and you know like exactly what you said there's a little piece of that in in my thesis but in terms of looking at so getting away from that angle and looking Mm -hmm. at what we can do pedagogically or how we can structure courses or whether it's content or perspectives. Um, I mean, that's all a piece of it is making sure there's an inclusive content examples and perspectives. But a part of it that I noticed was just an absence of community online that that's a that's difficult in an asynchronous course as well. So trying to get away from looking at the students as just looking at the other side of it, what could we do better to support learners on who are taking asynchronous courses? When I look at the kinds of things that students identified as problems or, or things that sort of made them feel alienated or disconnected or, or why they didn't find online to be preferable, as with most approaches to equity in education, we, we may be targeting a particular population when we ask these questions, but like, you know, the things that you found they're, they're not only true of Indigenous learners, right? Like when students mm-hmm. say that they don't have a relationship to students and instructors, um, when they feel like there's a disconnect between what's happening in their lives and the course content, when they feel a sense of separateness or they're not integrated into campus. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, middle-class white lady. I also don't like those experiences. And it just struck me when I was reading that, so much of the way we we tend to think about education is is so steeped in like one particular the, this deficit model right that you mentioned but also just this idea that i don't know like you just have to get through it the way it's designed because it's always been designed that way it really struck me in reading your work that there are reasons to pursue this just because the educational outcomes would be better for many many learners and i i was just really struck by that i mean i definitely don't want to take away from the important work and, and the way you talk about connecting with the recommendations of the TRC and the importance in contextualizing, especially some of the really difficult content in courses around like the history of residential schooling and like framing those things appropriately. I, I, I definitely don't want to erase that, but I was just, I was just really struck by like, we should be doing this. Like <laughs> we just should be doing, we should be building this community so that all learners can succeed more effectively. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of things like creative things such as like, right as I started the project, um, this job description started floating around from UBC about a digital, an Indigenous mentor to be online at different times. And it was Mm. like a part-time position, you know, geared towards like maybe a graduate student. Different ideas like having, I remember presenting on the topic early as I was preparing to do the data collection and 
you know, just kind of throwing it out there it, at, a, at an Indigenous graduate student conference. And so most of the students would have been Indigenous and just sort of, you know, throwing it out there. Is this a good topic to do? You know, because of ki- partly what you said, a lot of this has, it can affect any student who's especially remote students who are on their own, that community is important, but also that you, if you were online, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have at your fingertips, like the same types of supports that Indigenous students enjoy on campus Mm -hmm. that have been developing over the last five to 10 years. So like a gathering place of a community to belong to and to be in person. So often there's a computer banks and, you know, that draws students in and the printer and food and elders and uh, learning strategists. So Mm -hmm. that all exists there. But could that be, you know, there could there be a digital community, you know, and a lot of this has to do with funding and institutional pressures, right? Um, This is my perspective is the digital community isn't ever going to replace the in-person one, but it could maybe bridge some of these things. One of the one of the interesting findings was that some students got together on their own. So they were creating that anyway. Like if they were doing uh, different courses, they would often get together with a group of them that were also going to school. So maybe not taking the same topic, but they were just getting together. So that's an indication to me that there was a need for a community and they just did it themselves, right? They just got together at someone's house. They had study times or study groups keep each other accountable or at least set the set the time apart from their lives and then the camaraderie of just working together so I noticed that that happened you know I didn't get into too much detail about how that affected their learning but they did definitely enjoy that and made them feel less you know alone in their studies well and I really appreciated actually the the focus that you put on satisfaction, on on feeling connected, on sort of the affective experience of learning, because that's that's really important, right? I'm often, mm-hmm. I think, often overlooked. You know, it's interesting that you're raising this. We've just been going through this integrated strategic planning process, and on the open learning side, one of the things that we've been really trying to underscore in our submission to the ISP process is that we need to achieve much more equity for online students and campus students when it comes to the services that they have access to, you know, tutoring resources and wellness resources and all those kinds of things. And one of the opportunities that has been presented to us by the circumstances in which we find ourselves is that we know that a lot of services can be extended into virtual space, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of things that were previously only ever offered face-to-face. And it's my hope that that becomes an opportunity for all open learning students. But, you know, I'm particularly obviously interested in the focus here on Indigenous learners and seeing Indigenous students succeed. I'm wondering what would be your recommendations, whether it's sort of on a, whether you want to talk about a structural level for kind of open learning courses in general, or if you're thinking of what individual instructors can do to help students who are feeling sort of disconnected and and displaced to feel more connected to to the learning environment. Okay, so I can tell you one thing that comes to mind, and I don't want to be overly, you know, critical of asynchronous instructors, but um, there were a number of students actually indicated. So this wasn't just open learning students. It was pretty broadly circulated. The biggest things that stick out in my mind are that a number of them really felt, and this may, may come from a place of a lack of belonging potentially or that not being built um, because they're remote or async, you know, away from campus, that they 
wish that they had an earlier connection with a, an instructor and that they that connection be initiated by the instructor and and not themselves you know and i wasn't interviewing and giving advice but i if i was to give advice to students when i do talk to students i'm teaching um the career management class i and any other guest lectures i've done i do always talk about that 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 it is important to make those connections as well right but in terms of the instructor and the power relationship that exists it may not always be maybe as obvious to the instructor but the indigenous students i spoke to a few of them at least indicated that they would love to have had earlier connections. That was one of the questions in the survey, not a survey, sorry, it was just an interview guide. But um, I asked, you know, kind of near the end or during, unless they came up with it on their own, because these were very conversational. Um, mm. It wasn't a survey, it was a conversation. So I let uh, let it meander, however. So some people did offer that they wish they had connection earlier and that they had community in terms of discussion. So I think outreach from the instructor, which maybe those instructors are not used to that potentially because they are asynchronous. So there isn't necessarily, um, you know, that structure of like we meet every week and here's my office hours. I'm not sure exactly how they operate, right? The one, a couple of positive, you know, things came out of this too, in that um, some of the students who felt they had a really great experience had cohorts that gathered at the beginning of a, a different model, it's still asynchronous, but it was definitely early gathering. So they got together, you know, like a residence, a residential opportunity, like a weekend or something like that. So they felt those were really good ways to connect early and engage and maybe create some excitement or motivation or set expectations. A second piece of this uh, that I've noticed and I'm kind of working on the last year in terms of support, I'm wondering if there is a way that we could support students who don't have those dialectical skills that are yeah. potentially required for discussion spaces, right? And I was just thinking that because, you know, that ties into your first point about the that residential experience because it's also an opportunity to sort of gauge expectations amongst mm -hmm. a cohort which I think can mm -hmm. be really scary, especially if it's your first or you've had a you've had a gap in your studies and you're coming back to it, or if it's your first course, and especially if it's your first online course, it's like, what even is the expectation? What's the level of discourse? Like if I use the wrong your, are people gonna think I'm, you know, not able to do this course material? Like that kind of stuff. And I right. I can see how having seen people like in real life and connected with them could help with that a lot. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good point. That didn't come up in anybody's comments, but the little bit of research I've done recently, um, so I'm engaged in a in an ed tech PhD program. So I'm working on sort of a little bit deeper dive into discourse and how culture and gender impacts discourse online. Something that I just observed through the conversations that I had become more, like they've resonated with me more as I've done some more reading and, and delved into this topic is that I believe there is sort of a reticence to wade into the discussion 
potentially. And then that relates to belonging and sense of belonging being built and trust, right? So a residence or a residential kind of component would help that as well, but also outreach from the instructor. And then perhaps, I think you've touched on this too in different workshops that I've been with you, is that you've mentioned being more um, didactic about expectations and ensuring the equity is there. Because if if you just roll out expectations and talk about this is how we're going to constructively build knowledge over here, that may not be something that especially first and second year students would know about unless they've had that experience in high school. Definitely, there's a a disconnect between what I think some students are expecting at university and cultural expectations of the instructor versus the student and then the way online kind of courses it from my perspective I don't know maybe you can weigh in on this too but the way that those are constructed it almost feels like you need a little bit more advanced um, dialectical skills to take advantage of the discussion you know it's that old UDL concept right of offering multiple means of expression and often that gets really flattened when everything is happening textually you sort of have to succeed in this space and I've noticed that even um, when we were when we did the pivot online many campus instructors rolled out discussion forums and then were immediately drowning in discussion forum content because students were writing like way more than was expected and that also is an expectation setting issue right and also we make a lot of assumptions about what information students glean from the syllabus how they read it like I think instructors think, well, all the discussion forums are worth 5%. Students know they don't need to write very much. It's 5% like for the whole term. If you're not super experienced in reading a syllabus or you're like me and you have very little spatial sense and what 5% is is just not super meaningful, <laughs> understanding you know, that you don't need to write an essay every week. I mean, I remember writing response papers myself as a student and realizing midway through the semester that I was I was writing like a formal essay every week and <laughs> other people in the class were just scribbling out like notes on their readings. And that was all that was expected. Right. But I never oh. recognized that, never realized that. So I think, yeah, when we talk about just talking to students about what they need to do and, and I think in particular, you know, if you intend something to be, for example, like an informal space for students to share ideas, then can they post an audio clip? Can they post a video clip? Can they do something that might break down some of those assumptions about for what formal writing is or what they have to be able to do in order to succeed in that space, right? Like, I just think there's so many layers. And when the whole class is communicating and connecting via text, that's a lot <laughs> for some yeah. students who maybe have really negative experience associated with having professors read their writing, right? Like there's a lot yeah. of baggage there for many of us. Yeah, that's true. I so this didn't show up in my thesis, but I as an as a student when you said your own student experience, I worry about that stuff too. Like I, you know, I'm I've taken a, a lot of courses, so we're talking different, you know, different experiences than undergrad. I probably would have had the same anxieties, but <laughs> basically I I had a student colleague like in a class and I recognized that she seemed to be unwilling or un I, I can't actually speak to her thought process, but she put in a doc into the discussion space. I don't know what that says, but it says something. And my assessment of that was maybe potentially, was she afraid other 
for other people to read her writing? Did she feel that it was more formal than than it was? Was she uncomfortable with the software? She must not have been because she was able to attach a doc, right? But mm-hmm. I thought it was very difficult to have a conversation with that because you, you know, it's an extra step to download the doc. And then I did do that. I, I read her her output and then put in a conversation thread and there was no response. But then that was something else that came up. I was talking to my, actually my PhD supervisor about this yesterday. And it, what came up was that you're exactly right, that there isn't, if there isn't explicit instructions or expectations of of what the discussion space is and for the class, maybe even like you've mentioned co-creating the rules for it, mm-hmm. that per- perhaps coming up with a, a sense or at least a, a felt sense of a co-creation of the rules mm-hmm. and regulations for discussion space, then people are not as uncomfortable maybe challenging an idea because that's what the discussion space is ideally for is one student says, oh, well, this is what I got out of the readings and this is what it means to me or I connected it with this. It's sort of reflective. Then another student I noticed even in my PhD classes there's a lot of concern and worry about the grading. And so removing the grading piece can sometimes be helpful and just marking it as, yes, you participated or not, like five or zero, right? But over the course of the semester, because then you get away from people who are just summarizing to show that they've, you know, that's like more like the essay writing rather than connecting it. And then that's how you build some interesting conversations. But if people are afraid of a offending somebody that they don't know well or offending anybody even if they do know well or just so you get these I I think what we were talking about and it came up in a reading that I was just looking at for another lit review on culture and online discussion spaces is that there's a lot of cheerleading posts right I don't know (laughs) (laughs) great thought and then and then I thought that too and so there's not a lot of extra knowledge being um, or not a lot of interesting conversations so that's where the threads just die and you've done your requisite two two person response and your own post but if you if you yeah layer that in and say yeah what I'd like this space to be is for us to explore then at least that's a little bit more information for to alleviate that anxiety about marking. There was an absolutely legendary Twitter thread around the beginning of the pivot online where somebody was like, I really need my instructors to stop assigning me a 250 word discussion post plus two responses. And then somebody responded and they were like, great point. I really liked when you said that you wanted to not have to write a 250 word discussion post with two responses. Thumbs up. And then the person replied to that and they were like, I'm also responding to this post. Great work. And I was just like, <laughs> really? dying. That is what it feels like, right? Exactly. So often. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we, we often set it up pedagogically to be exactly that, right? It's like right. you if you assign someone to write a 250-word response, they're going to think it through. Like they're going to have something of a, 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 a concrete argument, but they're likely also going to be sort of feeling like, finished. You know, like that's my 250 words, I'm done. Whereas mm-hmm. if you let people post a question or a provocation, if you let them just speak instead of having to write, if you give them these other ways in, you maybe will allow for more actual organic discussion. But right, man, I know right. it's hard. It's a hard thing. There's no doubt about it. 
When it works right. well, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. You're right. You're right. And it is. And I think as it would be interesting to do a, a study on that to see how it evolves over the semester, because I can see even in the class I'm teaching, which I'm sure other season, more seasoned teachers have seen this or instructors, is that the class is starting to come alive now. But at the beginning, it was difficult to get us all chatting and, and being comfortable. I can feel an ease in the class a little bit more than I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that happens online as well. And sometimes it only takes one provocative person that, that can break the ice as well. I think that is true. And it's always, yeah, it's so hard to balance in, in a fully online asynchronous discussion between the student who gets the conversation going and then kind of ends up sort of like a bulldozer figure, right? And it's it's really, it's a much more complex and nuanced task than we treat it like. And I, I think that, um, you know, the discussion board is often the centerpiece of the asynchronous class in terms of any kind of connection between students mm-hmm. and with the instructor. I think we pretend like it's easier than it is. And I think a lot of campus faculty became aware of that through the experience of the the pivot. I think they realized, oh, it's actually a lot maybe more complicated to run a good discussion online than we may have thought. And so I think, you know, work mm-hmm. like what you did in your master's work and also what it sounds like you're working towards in your doctoral work is really important, right? To think about how discourse actually like functions and how to achieve good discussion and how to structure this kind of pedagogical experience that does allow and account for, you know, cultural difference and expectations and also just experience. Like the third time you approach an online discussion form is really different than the first time. But I don't think that most of our course design is built to acknowledge that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, that brings up an interesting way of marking too that I'm sure other people have thought through. Like if someone has to do 10 reflections online, let's say like maybe that's too much, but and, and they are marked on it, then maybe they can pick the last five or the best five or something, something like that, right? Or some kind of way for a student to have, have a say and start to learn how to have a more equal say in the learning process. Well, and also if we want people to improve their skills, then we should we should reward them when their skills improve, right? Right, right. So, yeah, that's a really like, good point. Giving them the giving them the chance to do that. And also, you know, it's good reflective practice for a student at the end of term to go back through and say, I think these were my five best contributions to the class discussion. Like that's super powerful. They've had to actually think through what worked and what didn't. And and there's learning in that, especially if, you know, you ask them to submit it sort of portfolio style with a little reflective piece. Like these are the five mm-hmm. I'm submitting and here's why. I think that there can be quite a lot of radical and interesting work happening on these, these very staid and static looking discussion forms, but it, it just does have to be intentionally done. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I think, and you're, you're reminding me of something that is interesting too, that kind of came up that students often mentioned in, in the study that they would have liked, like, or one student who did really well, she said she had attributed her skills to, and we go back to like the onus being on the student to have all these self-regulatory mm. um, characteristics and have developed they said that uh, some success courses were very helpful, but there is an issue with that that could be alleviated by sometimes the instructors taking on that role 
in every course. So, Mm. but it takes a little more vigilance and feeling out the students. So say you have, I don't know exactly how these online courses uh, asynchronous go, but say there's 20 students and only when you hand in an assignment, do you get connection or feedback? Mm. Um, If you want to use that asynchronous discussion space and everyone starts at different times, that's difficult. But so is there a role for the instructor to play in that discussion space or, you know, that has to again be discussed with the students like you know you're going to be in a class with maybe maybe two people at the same time or you know it would be helpful for you to look at the artifacts of the discussion here stuff like that like just explaining but potentially even taking some of those you know some of the items that would show up in a success course and supporting students with those even though that's not your content area, that if that makes sense. Providing some scaffolding there. I mean, I know that's part and parcel of instructor work, but I think that wasn't necessarily happening in these students' courses that they talked about. It was certainly, from what you've written, it wasn't legible to them, right? If that work was happening, it wasn't happening in a way that was legible to them. And, and that's a disconnect too. And you know, my background is in teaching writing and my constant frustration you know, I'd be at some some faculty meeting or some event and, you know, I'd have somebody from the anthropology department come up and say like, you know, students really can't write. I'd be like, well, I'm doing my best in the one semester that I have them for. Like, what are you yeah. doing to teach writing in your course? Right? It's this, <laughs> yeah. we really tend to, um, there's a great article that refers to some of this as the quote unquote housework of the university. And these do tend to be women dominated subject areas, but, you know, communications, English, student success, these courses that are designed to be like one and done, like you'll go take your writing class over there. You'll go take your student success course over there. And I will be here teaching the quote unquote real material, right? And it's a nuts. Right? Like, I mean, the idea that you would learn such a complicated skill, whether it's the skill of how to be a student or the skill of how to write in a single semester, cuckoo banana pants. But the other thing is that it's, it's making a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions that I don't think are supported by the research about skills transfer, right? Like if I teach you how to write a five-page research paper in an academic writing course, that's a lot to ask you to then never take another bit of writing instruction and then you're expected to produce some kind of honors writing piece at the fourth year level. And like, where's the bridge, right? I think that student success is very similar, right? In, in that we we the institution, and I don't mean TRU, I mean like the institutional structure, treats it as a thing that happens over there. Whereas students are best served surely by having that course, but also by integrating those skills throughout their experience as learners. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. And I think um, that kind of brings up another piece when you're thinking about writing. And yeah, you're exactly right. Like you can learn a lot in one class, but I think unless you practice something, but there, I think there's a lot of lot to be said for those, like the writing center and different places like that. And I, I mean, 
some students, you know, if they're taking part in the university experience and, you know, using those services, like even even the career services, right? If you feel that you belong then, or you have a, a sense of belonging at your institution, you may be more apt to use those services. But I think, you know, continually using those services and, and improving and not expecting to have perfected it or have that anxiety of performance right away, right? So I think I've, I've often suggested, you know, continually using those services to students, but also um, the fact that they may not always be as available or, or I think, I think one of the, a couple of the, the participants just mentioned that, oh, I wasn't aware of these services until you talked about them. So I, I know that the Writing Center was around the time that I started project they were then offering online but that was a complaint like you know and then there was a scheduling issue like I you know how students you know how we do our work sometimes it's like you need it right now you, you can't schedule your help so there so that kind of goes back to this role of maybe that digital mentor that floats around online or the digital elder or something like that but you mean that's not that's not a panacea but it can be helpful to um, just know that you can get support, right? And that it's exa- like it's a normal part of the process. Totally. And it comes back to that idea of like the services may be there, but if they're not legible to the students you're trying to target, then they're yeah. not there, right? And it's, yeah. you know, in act- academic integrity circles, we talk about the fact that there may be an insulating effect against academic integrity by having some of these services more available at times when students actually want and need them, right? So it's like, if it's 2 a.m., it's really hard to get legitimate help at 2 a.m., right? Which, you know, there are all kinds of structural reasons why that would be hard to organize. But maybe we could start to think in the direction of, even if it's like an asynchronous help service, like like right away, you know, where you, you can reach out at the moment you need it. Because the people who are there at 2 a.m. are the essay mills, right? They will absolutely take your call at 2 in the morning yeah. and produce what you need or what you think you need. And, and I think that increasingly students work at any moment of the day and the least reputable folks are are also working at every moment of the day. We need to think about ways we can counter that so that when students go looking for support, there's a legitimate option there. Oh, that's a really good point. Actually, there was a comment. So when you said that about academic integrity, it led me to think about one one thing that kind of came up in terms of, and I know I know that since I've done this project, there's been you know, a pandemic and potentially I I thought that maybe there was an improvement in remote delivery. Maybe, maybe not always, I mean can't generalize, but just that there were so many people had to pivot online. It's just become a bigger conversation. So I was hoping that that would Im- improve, but potentially not. And I guess it depends on the instructor, but I was thinking about scheduling exams. And I mean, I can't really speak to that as much as before because I as a grad student I wasn't doing exams thankfully but the proctoring software and the the setting exam times and just dealing like when you said structural issues so dealing with it seemed like that was a difficulty and connecting with setting exams getting accessibility and even knowing that there was accessibility options right so that just the the hoops to jump through and I feel like people there were a couple participants at least that said they had to like pay again or didn't match up with their schedule or didn't, you know, and I don't know if 
open learning uses proctoring software? They do. Yeah, they do for the like, we have a contract with ProctorU for open learning courses that require a final exam now. Yeah. Yeah. They're, so they booked a room where they did the testing centers previously and the testing centers are starting to reopen right. again. The testing centers were closed for a long time due to COVID. And as those are starting to open up again, students have, I think, more options. But I mean, it's no secret that I'm super uncomfortable with surveillance software generally. Well, I don't love assessments that require it in the first place. But I think that what you're describing with the hoops that students have to go through, like, I think it's really unreasonable, for example, that accessibility is entirely the responsibility of a student to arrange and organize, right? Like that there's no sort of structural support within the institution if the student isn't driving that bus themselves. And, you know, there's a big argument, obviously, the traditional argument is the one about personal responsibility. But the flip side of that is like, if you don't even know that a service is available, you can't actually be responsible for it. And there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of students who find out really late in the game, academically, that they have need for or that those supports exist. And then, you know, we require extremely expensive documentation from students. It's like, it's a lot of hoops, a lot of hoops. And they may not have a doctor. Yeah, yeah there's all kinds of things that kind of didn't come up necessarily in my um, thesis. It, the The issue of scheduling exams and, and, and organizing around, there was a couple of participants, I believe, that had had managed to work through that and others who became aware of it later because a lot of people are not even aware that they may have something um, they are challenged with that could be alleviated with some accessibility supports. So just a lack of awareness of, you know, like say, say I have ADHD or anxiety. Those are things that I could get support for if I could get through the hoops. Yeah. So in terms of those things, and I believe there was some rigidity around. So if there's, if it's open learning and it's in general, not just open learning at, at TRU, but just if it is supposed to be this flexible, you can work it into your, into your um, life, then the exam should be the same. But I felt that they were saying that that was not the case and it seemed incongruent. The reviews from students with the option of the online proctoring have often been very positive. And I think it's been for that reason. Like there are more times when they can write and those times are more um, in keeping with a student who is, say, working during the day, for example, or a, or a caregiver. So, and so I grudgingly have to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't like but I think that from a I think the ability to actually schedule the exam when students want it has improved but the question is like is there a way to improve that without putting students through a surveillance proctoring tool right like that's that's the question that I would like to yeah. answer. yeah <laughs> I I'm not yeah I don't you know I haven't delved into that I know it's a thing and I I've heard I've heard um I know that you were um a champion of of that, and it's been an issue, but I, I just don't see how anybody wins from you know, from that situation. It does put a lot of anxiety and stress on students that can sort of be a challenge to to show your knowledge if you're if you're mm -hmm, anxious, mm -hmm. right? Because I know I know myself. I had to take a teaching test. Oh, I remember, no. and I was so anxious about it. It was it was a long time ago, and I was moving to the U.S., so I took this standardized test, right? And I was, um, I remember I did excellent in the math. For some reason, I'm a math person. So I zipped through the math like 96%. And this, and the essay short answer and essay part 
it wasn't even that hard. I was so struggling. Speaking of writing, I I barely got through that, and I it was like a blank in my brain. You know, I was just and then this the ticking of the clock, and you're in this room. So my point is, I I'm not a proponent of exams. I mean, I think you can get the knowledge from an open book exam, especially if it's remote and if the student is potentially, you know, not, I mean, if there's no cheating there, if you're able to look stuff up, because in work, you're looking things up, right? You're oh not um, expected. 90% of my day is Googling. Yeah. Like, honestly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, you sh- like, okay, so I have an exam coming up and I'm sure you did this. You had a, your comp yeah. exam and I'm so anxious about it, but I'm, I'm going to be doing it for three weeks, three questions. So, I just need to be organized and know where all my material is, but I, I won't be asked to like sit in a room and write it for, you know, for a day. Right. So I don't know. I just think the days of those things are, I, I do think it, so back to indigenous students and I just think that they're an extra challenge that potentially could be alleviated, but yeah. <laughs> that's just my suggestion. No, I think you're right. And I'm really, I am really struck by how often when I read research that is looking at improving situations for equity seeking groups in our universities, like how often those solutions are actually just good practice. And the gap between sort of the way we talk about teaching and what actually happens in our classrooms is still is still pretty striking. And so I was mm-hmm really fascinated by your work, Robbie, and I can't wait to see what comes out of your PhD because I think this is really, really fascinating. And also, I'm really glad I'm not writing comps. So good luck (laughs) with your comps coming up. Thank you so much for your time today, Robbie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking an interest. It's exciting to revisit it. So take care. Thank you. So that is it for season two, episode 21. 21? Seriously? Episode 21 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. And I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. In both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, and it sort of echoes what Robbie was talking about, but also, I think, the beginning of the show, and that is, this is a big change for everyone on campus, whether it's a change you were really looking forward to or a change that you're dreading. I hope you'll check in with your students about how they're feeling about mask mandates, and maybe that's another thing that you can negotiate as a class, just like other classroom ground rules. However you decide to navigate this moment, I wish you calm and I wish you grace. And I hope that you are looking after yourself in whatever capacity that takes. We'll talk soon. Take care of yourselves and each other, and especially each other. We're all we've got. Bye-bye.